We'll take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, my son Josiah came and sat with me right here just a minute ago, and as we were singing, he got in his little notebook, and he says, Dad, is it Hebrews again? And I thought, as long as he's been coming to church, that's all it's been. So we will move on eventually to another book, but uh, we're still in Hebrews this morning. I have been a parent for a little over 17 years, and I have not yet reached the stage of, I'm pretty sure I got that figured out. I don't know if you ever get to that stage, but after 17 and a half years, I have still not gotten to that stage. I'm pretty confident I don't have it figured out, but I have figured some things out, and there's some things that have become clear to me over the years, and one of them is this, I feel confident that there are two things that every child needs most from their parents. Two things that every child needs most from their parents. The first one is godliness. There is no gift you can give your children that is more important than the gift of your own personal walk with Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that will take the place of that. Uh, their Sunday school teachers walk with Jesus isn't good enough. Their pastors walk with Jesus is not good enough. The greatest gift you can give them is your own personal walk with Jesus Christ. But the second thing I think every child needs from their parents, and listen, this one is complicated and maybe hard to understand, but I'm confident in your ability this morning that you're awake and you're ready to receive this difficult truth. Are you ready for this? The second thing every child needs from their parent is parenting. You know, just because you're a parent doesn't mean you're parenting. You're a parent by the virtue of the fact that you had kids, but that doesn't mean you're parenting. There are a lot of parents who are not parenting. I've had many seasons in my life when I have been a parent, but I haven't been parenting. I may have taken more of a passive role than an active role. I have not stepped into circumstances that I should have stepped into. It is very easy for a parent to realize they are not actually parenting. But children need parenting. That's why God gave them parents. And that's why throughout the scripture we have passages like Proverbs 22.6 which says, train up a child in the way that they should go. That's parenting. Ephesians 6, 4 says, raise them up in the nurture and admonition, or it can say discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that idea of training them up and, and raising them up is the act of parenting. Parenting is lovingly and consistently and faithfully and purposefully training up children. And the word that the Bible uses for this is the word discipline. Now, discipline can have a meaning of correction and consequences, and that's certainly a part of parenting. There are moments in which we bring correction. There are moments in which we bring consequences. If we don't, there is a word for children that grow up without correction and consequences. The word is rotten. So children have to have this, and the Bible models this. The Bible is very clear that children need correction and consequences, but there's more to parenting than that, and there's more to training than that, and there's more to discipline than that. When we think of discipline, we almost always think of that, the negative, the correction and the consequences, but the reality is more than not, the word discipline is used to refer to instruction and guidance and leadership and training. 
the reality is discipline is training in a way that produces character. Discipline is seeing a vision for your child and training them that they might hopefully go that direction. And yes, it demands some consequences and yes, it demands some correction. But listen, I would say in healthy parenting for every moment of correction and consequences, there are 10 moments which are more guidance and leadership and training. Discipline is both correction and training. And we know this. We know this when we think of the word discipline. First Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Well, when you use that word discipline in that context, you're not thinking consequences. You're thinking that you want to train yourself for a purpose. You have this vision of godliness. And you know in order to be godly, you have to be disciplined. You have to apply effort. You have to structure your time and say no to certain things and say yes to certain things and make sacrifices because you're disciplining yourself. We talk about the spiritual disciplines. And when we think about that, we don't think that these are consequences of doing something bad. They're Bible reading and prayer and giving and serving and fasting. We do those because by practicing those disciplines... We're training ourselves with the goal of being godly. You know, in reality, a disciple is really just someone who is submitted to the discipline of someone else. You say, well, I want to be like you. Therefore, I'm going to become your disciple. And so I'm going to submit myself to your discipleship, which sometimes will look like correction, but more than that, will just like, look like consistent training and guidance and leadership I am submitting myself to your discipline with the hope that I may be like you. And you see in the ministry of Jesus, sometimes he corrected his disciples. Sometimes there were consequences. But more than any of that, there was just a lot of consistent leadership and guidance and instruction. Parenting is discipleship. Whether they have willingly submitted to it or not, God has put them in your home. And therefore, your responsibility is to bring that discipline to bring that kind of training and instruction because you have a vision for their lives which they don't have and couldn't even comprehend part of that vision is that they would just grow up to be good citizens of the planet and not be menaces to society amen that's like part of the good vision but greater than that is that somehow they'd love jesus you can determine that fully, but it is our hope that we would train them in a way that would cause them to someday love Jesus. And our model for this, in all of this training and correction, all of this discipline, is one good and perfect father. God the Father. He has a vision for his children. His vision for his children is a vision that they live a life that is for their good and for his glory. I want to make sure you get that. Like part of his vision is that we live a life for his glory. We are created in his image to bear his image that those who come in contact with us might see something of him. And so God has created you to make him known. But even apart from that, part of his vision is that you would just avoid the pathway of foolishness and all of its consequences and all of the negative effects and walk the path of righteousness. What God has in store for you is for your good. His pathways are for your good. The life that God has intended for you to live, life at its best, is life in which we follow Jesus Christ in the path of righteousness. 
He has a vision to take your broken life and to bring it back together. He has a vision to take your insecurities and to make you secure. He has a vision to conform you into the image of his son, to make you like Jesus and to protect you from all of the foolish things that we might do. And the word that the Bible uses for that training and for that instruction and the way in which God accomplishes the vision he has for us is the word discipline. And it means both correction and training. There are some times in which we need to be corrected. There are some times in which we need to be trained. But I would say that most of the time in our lives, the discipline of the Lord, listen, most of the time comes in the form of just his training, his guidance, his leadership in order to accomplish the purposes he has for us. And that is the point of the text. The text for the day talks about the discipline of the Lord. And immediately our first thought is, we did something wrong, God's mad at us, and he brings discipline. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is this. Through Jesus Christ, he has brought you to himself and he has made you his child. He loves you and he is committed to be a father toward you. And any loving father is going to train his children. So God is training Now, before we read the text, I just want to remind you again of the context. Because we're right here in the middle of our understanding that the believers that are receiving this message are enduring, as it says in 1032, a hard struggle of suffering. Think about this words. Their life is hard right now. Their life is a struggle and their life is suffering. It's not just one of those. It's all three of those. Their life is characterized by a hard struggle of suffering And when a believer suffers and struggles, it's really hard for them to process, isn't it? Isn't it hard to process our suffering? One of the greatest disservices of the church in this generation is not helping us to understand how to navigate and process our suffering. And so they're asking all of the big questions. Who's behind my suffering? Why am I suffering? What's the point of my suffering? They're asking all those questions. And so he's going to help them see their suffering properly. That really is the reason for the text. He wants them to see that their suffering, listen, is actually the discipline of the Lord. But it's not corrective because they did something wrong. It's instructive because he's their father and he loves them. He's giving them an entirely new way to see their suffering. And it begins there in Hebrews 12 verse 4. If you're there, say amen. It says this. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, quoting Proverbs 3, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us, you, his children, for 
our good. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I was talking to my brother this week who's a pastor and we were talking about this text. Both of us have thought a lot about this text and just about the idea of suffering and We were saying how life transforming it is when you can begin to see suffering from a right perspective. When you can take all of the things in your life, and and by suffering, I mean the annoyances of life, the difficult people in your life, the massive disappointments in your life, the, the ways in which God has navigated your path, which are not the way that you wanted it to go. All of those things fall under the term of the discipline, the training of the Lord when you can begin to see those with the right perspective, it changes everything. And so my prayer this morning was that this would just be helpful. <laughs> that this would be a helpful text to you to help you to see and to process correctly what God is doing in your life, particularly those things which seem, as it says, unpleasant for now. Three ways in which you need to see your suffering First of all, see the sovereignty behind your suffering. Write that down. See the sovereignty behind your suffering. The first question of suffering is always this. Who's behind this? (laughs) Is the devil behind it? Am I behind it? Is some evil person behind it? Who's behind all of this? And he knows that they're struggling with that question. Every one of us struggle at some point in our life with that question. I had, I had someone say to me after the first service, I've been struggling with that question and maybe it's because I'm immature. And I said, well, I'm not so sure about that because even David later in his life was calling out to the Lord saying, have you forgotten me forever? Where are you? Who's behind all of this? It's just the question we ask. And he knows that they're asking, and so he begins to answer the question. And he starts in verse 4. He says this. He says, in your struggle against sin. Now, that is not a reference to their sin. This is very important. He's not saying you're struggling because of your sin and your consequences are because of your sin. That's not what he's saying. The context makes us know that. He's referring back to the exact same thing Jesus was enduring. Remember, he's comparing our life to the life of Jesus in this text. And what it says in verse 3 is consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility. What he's saying is the persecution that you're facing, the hard struggle of suffering, is a result of sinful people. Many of us have been hurt by sinful people. Well, let me say that again. All of us have been hurt by sinful people. And the struggling, the struggle that they're having, the suffering that they're experiencing is a result of the hostility of sinful people against them. So the end of chapter 10, they're being thrown in prison. Their property is being confiscated from them. They're being publicly shamed. And so because of that, when you're answering the question who's behind this, the first logical answer is, well, sinful people. People that hate Jesus and people that hate the kingdom and people that hate me, they're behind all of this. And that is true. Jesus also endured hostility from sinners. But that's not the ultimate answer. 
There is another answer, a greater answer. So who was behind Jesus' suffering? Well, certainly you could say, well, the Jews were behind it. Well, the Romans were behind it. Well, the religious leaders were behind it. But if we really know the story, what we realize is the Jews and the Romans and the religious leaders were pawns in the hand of God. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. You didn't murder me. I laid down my life. I came to give my life as a ransom for many, Mark 10 tells us. And so behind all of the anger of men and all of the hatred and hostility of the Jewish religious leaders of the day, behind all of that is a sovereign God who before the foundation of the world had orchestrated the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, for you. And everybody else involved in this is playing the part, their pawns in the hand of God. So listen, if this was true of Jesus, this was true of them. Was there suffering because of the hostility of those who hated Jesus? Yes, but behind all of that hostility is a sovereign hand. Behind the suffering of Job was a God who gave permission and parameters to the one who was bringing the suffering. Behind all of the suffering of Joseph was a God who is orchestrating all of those things in order to accomplish his purposes in his life and far greater purposes in the lives of many others. So the reality is in Job's life and in Joseph's life and in their life and in Jesus' life and in your life, God is not a passive observer of your suffering. God's not watching your suffering and then trying to figure out how to make it into something good. Because as a parent, he is orchestrating all of these things in a way that we could not comprehend to train us. His sovereign control over every bit of this training. And what I love about this text is that reminds us, listen, even the hostility of sinners is under God's sovereign training. You realize how important that is? Even the hostility of sinners towards you is a part of God's sovereign training, which means this. Every bit of conflict you have, the disappointment you have, the discouragement, the sickness, the struggle, the pain, the people that make life difficult, all of that is under the sovereign hand of a God who is training you. If you don't feel that, we're always going to respond to suffering in a wrong way. And I think that's one of the things that he's trying to correct here. He's trying to say, listen, you have all of these temptations to respond to your suffering in a negative way. And all of those temptations flow out of the fact that you don't see it as a part of the sovereign plan of God. I mean, look at some of the negative responses he confronts. Look at at verse 4. He's saying some of you will be disgruntled by your suffering. In your struggling at sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I love this verse because it's, it's a, I don't know, it's a tad bit passive aggressive. In the sense of it saying, listen, I know this is hard, but if you read chapter 11, they got sawn in two. Right, that's in chapter 11. So in chapter 11, there there was much more suffering. So I know things are hard for you, but listen, you haven't been sawn in two yet. 
And sometimes, listen, it's true. Sometimes in our suffering, we think we've got it worse than anybody else and no one understands and no one's had life worse than us. I go through that at least once a week, right? We all just like, no one's ever had it. This is just, this is life, right? And so he's saying, listen, let's put this in perspective. Don't get disgruntled by your sin. There are many who have had it worse than you. In verse five, he says, also don't be dismissive in your suffering. Don't be dismissive. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's possible to be dismissive. It's possible to look at our suffering and just go, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna bear down and walk through it. Like, I'm not gonna stop and think about it. I'm not gonna try to see the Lord in it. I'm not gonna ask the questions in it. And so people just dismiss their suffering as if it doesn't matter. And others at the end of verse five get discouraged by it. Don't be weary. Have you ever been weary in your suffering? Raise your hand. Have you ever been weary in the difficulty of your life? Like we get weary in this. And so he says, these are the normal responses. We get disgruntled. We think no one's got it worse. We get dismissive. We don't stop and think about it. We just plow through it or we get discouraged and we just get so tired and weary of the suffering and it seems so long and so difficult And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, listen, those responses all flow out of a lack of understanding that there is sovereignty behind your suffering. There is sovereignty behind your suffering. But not only that, not only do I want you to see the sovereignty behind your suffering, I, I want you to see the love behind your suffering. Get that down. See the sovereignty behind your suffering. There is a sovereign God training you for his purposes. And those sovereign hands are loving hands. See the love behind your suffering. So if the first question we ask is, who's behind this? The next question is, well, why would he do this? (laughs) Like, why would God do this? It's happened to me a lot in the first service, but I see it even now. I, I, I think about some people who have suffered in such unimaginable ways. You just say, well, I understand that God is behind this, but why? Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? And the answer is in verse six. Listen. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Not the one he hates. Not the one he's disappointed in. The one he loves. And he chastises, I've got this underline like five times in my Bible, every son whom he receives. Every one of them. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God, listen to this line in verse seven. God is treating you as sons. In other words, your suffering is proof of your sonship and proof of his love. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If there is no training, if there is no discipline, you're not his son and he doesn't love you. I would have to say that every kid at some point in their lives wish they didn't have a dad. I mean, it's just at some point, maybe it's just a moment. Like I'm sick of him telling me what to do. I'm sick of the training. I'm sick of the instruction. I'm sick of the consequences. Even if it's just when you're five, I don't like you and I'd be better off by myself. Why does a six-year-old run away from home? Because they're confident they can do better without dad or mom, right? Just like, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. I was thinking about this 
looking at the statistics of the fatherless generation that we live in. Children who raise up in homes where there's not an active father are 10 more times likely to do drugs. They're two times more likely to commit suicide. They're seven times more likely to be pregnant as teens. 90% of homeless and runaways come from a fatherless home. 70% of kids in juvenile detention come from a fatherless home. Children need a father, and so do you. We need a father. We need a good, loving, perfectly heaven, heavenly, perfect heavenly father who knows better than we know, who is training us and discipling us in the paths of righteousness. There is never a moment in which we do not need the loving training of a sovereign father. Did you notice verse seven uses that word that's been so important to us in the last few weeks? The word endure. Because it told us in, in chapter 10 that you have need of endurance if you're gonna, if you're gonna, Receive the promises of God. If you're going to make it to the end as a believer, you've got to endure. You've got to hold on and be faithful. And then what he says in verse 7 is this. The training for your endurance is discipline. In your discipline, God is cultivating endurance, which is what you need to make it to the end. This is why Romans 5, 3 says this. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that our suffering produces endurance. So you have to have endurance in order to be a believer. You have to have endurance to hold on faithful until the end. And the means by which we get it is our suffering. It's just a reminder that sometimes what we need the most is only produced by the things we hate the most. Sometimes the things we need the most are produced by the things we hate the most. We, say, we want to have a work ethic, but we hate someone to train us in that. We want holiness and godliness, but we don't want the training. We say, God, we want resurrection power in our lives. We want to be able to defeat sin. We want that power of God to flow through us. Well, the pathway to the resurrection is the cross. And so it is in our suffering in which we're learning to receive the life of Christ. It is in that daily dying in which the power of God begins to flow through us. Oftentimes what we need the most is produced by what we hate the most. But in all of those things, there is a sovereign hand, which are loving hands, evidence of his love, training you to fulfill a good purpose. See the sovereignty behind your suffering. See the love behind your suffering. But the last one is this. See the purpose behind your suffering. See the purpose behind your suffering. So we ask, who's behind this? And the answer is ultimately God. Well, why? Why would God do this? Because he loves you. Why well, no, but what's all of this for? And I think the answer can be summarized in three words in verse 10. Here they are, for our good. For they disciplined us, these fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, do you see that? For our good. For our good. Why? That we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so God is, is saying to you, I want to accomplish something in your life. I want you, Psalm 23, 3, to, to be led in the paths of righteousness. I love that phrase because the paths of righteousness are the right paths. 
There are the wrong paths that lead you in the way of foolishness that will have dramatic consequences on your life. And we are constantly pulled toward those wrong paths. But there are the paths of righteousness which lead to peace and holiness and goodness and the favor and blessing of God. And what God does is he trains us, disciplines us to keep us on that path which leads to life. Like a good father, he has a vision for our life to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, a vision that you could not comprehend and could not see. And what he is doing in order to accomplish that ultimate purpose is day by day, moment by moment, he's putting, listen, the perfect amount of training Sometimes some correction, sometimes some consequences, but most of the time just a lot of leading and direction and guidance so that we might fulfill the purpose he has for us. I would say for me, the hardest thing about discipline as a parent is striking that balance in that spectrum between a child's resentment and a child's respect. Because there is a type of discipline that leads to resentment in a child. And there is a type of discipline that leads to respect. And over on this spectrum of, of resentment, I, I, I think the cause of that most of the time is an unbalanced parenting. Meaning, it's just nothing but consequences and condemnation and correction. It's the only thing you ever had of a parent is what you're doing wrong and how you can do better and correction, correction, correction. Well, that leads to resentment. On the other side is a balance of correction when it's needed, but for every one correction, there's 10 encouragements and instruction. This is why in Ephesians chapter six, it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's, that's the resentment side of, an, of discipline, but instead raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Good discipleship, good discipline is, is balanced. And I'm really comforted to know that God balances it perfectly. Verse nine, beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Like God knows how to do this perfectly. He knows exactly the right amount of pressure. He knows exactly the guardrails to put in our life. He knows exactly what to put every day. So it creates not resentment, but respect because we will look back and understand in part what God is doing to create the person that he wants us to be. And it is true, verse 11, and I think this certainly needs to be understand that this discipline of the Lord seems painful at the moment, doesn't it? It's painful. It's not, it's not pleasant, but it's yielding a peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. And so this is what God is doing, okay? Sovereignly, lovingly, perfectly. Orchestrating your life in a way that is for your good and his glory. But our response to that determines whether it produces the fruit it needs to. And that's in the last eight words of verse 11. To those who have been trained by it. You see, we can run from the training of the Lord. We can ignore the training of the Lord. We can go all back to those negative responses. We can be disgruntled and so overwhelmed that no one has it worse. Or we can be dismissive and just ignore it. Or we can be constantly discouraged by it. Or... We can walk through it 
by faith with our eyes on Jesus, allowing it to accomplish its purposes to those who have been trained by it. This is why James 1 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged or disgruntled. Don't give up or dismissive. Let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so what we do in the midst of all of our suffering is we ask the question, who's behind this? And we rest in a sovereign hand of God who doesn't let anything come to us without his approval. We rest in the loving hand of God who says, I'm doing this because I love you. And we rest in the good purposes of God who is saying, I'm doing this to accomplish something for your good. And in the midst of all of this, we just keep reminding ourselves that in our suffering, listen, God is not trying to punish you. He's trying to parent you. God's not trying to punish you. He's trying to parent you. And if you are a child, every day will be about training. Every day there will be something that seems difficult or something that seems like a bit of a challenge. But behind all of that is a good God who loves you and cares for you and has a vision for your life. And so my plea with you today is to not miss it and not disregard it. This is really not one of those messages that demands you respond in a sense. It's a message that demands that you submit. And to look to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you. And I know that you're good. And I know that you love me. And I know that you're faithful. And I know behind everything you do is a perfect heart. And I know you only want my good. You showed it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I submit my life to you. I give you everything. And I say, Lord, I'm trusting you as a disciple. I'm submitting to your training Lord, it's hard and it seems difficult, but I trust the loving hand of the Father who is leading you in the path of righteousness for his name's sake in which goodness and mercy will follow you every day of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.